0: If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at TheOrganicView.com. Today's show is sponsored by Austria's Finest Naturally, authentic pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil from the Styermark, available at OrganicUniverse.com. Listeners of The Organic View can receive $1 off their purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. Also, don't forget to check out our contest section on our website to submit your information for our free monthly giveaways. For more information, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com forward slash contests. On today's show, wildlife biologist Sam Drogi is going to talk about his new book, Bees, an Up-Close Look at Pollinators Around the World. So I'd like to welcome to the show Sam Drogi. Good afternoon, Sam, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Sam, can you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I'm a, a federal biologist, so I work for the U.S. Geological Survey, formerly Fish and Wildlife Service, and my job is to design and develop survey programs for plants and animals. And for the past, I'd say, 10-plus years now, we've been working a lot on um, on how to count, how to talk about the status of uh, uh, our native bee populations.
0: Sam, your work is just so beautiful. You've put so much love, so much detail into the work that you do. I'm just curious, who influenced you as a child that made you want to study wildlife?
1: Well, I, <laughs> it wasn't my parents, that's for sure. They were very nice parents, but they uh, that's not their background. It was more of a martini background, I'd say. And um, so it just was there. They will tell you that I was interested in um, nature and the outdoors and all things alive since I was seven, and it went from there. There have been a variety of people from uh, college professors to um, odds and ends people who just encouraged me to look in, back then mostly birds and things. So um, I'd say it was integral to who I was.
0: What prompted you to write this book, especially at this particular point in time?
1: The publisher is a um, a publisher of uh, the popular rather than scientific press, and we publish lots of scientific papers and things. But that um those scientific papers have a very limited audience, and what we found is that the pictures themselves were surprising to us, very attractive to people who weren't even biologists at all. this the mystery and the beauty and the the uh, immense detail that we can extract out with these new phot- photographic techniques or something that people just like looking at them, just similar to what, you know, people like looking at the cloud nebula from the Hubble Space Telescope. Is like it's reframing what you know about bees, just like the Hubble Telescope reframed what people knew about stars. We decided that once we were approached by the publisher that we wanted to have a book that was geared towards the general public rather than the usual scientific audience and present them with some of our best photographs and lots of little vignettes and stories about both the really different kinds of things that bees do around the world that I think most people have no idea. Even I was surprised by some of the things that we found out and had great visuals, and we had, I have to say, we had tons of fun doing that, being outside of the scientific press.
0: How long did it take you to compile all of the photos and the information in this book?
1: Um relatively short period of time. I was working, my um, co-author is Lawrence Packer at York University, and he's a world expert on world bees. I'm mo- much more parochial, just having worked mostly in the United States and a little bit in the Caribbean and South America. So together um, we had most of the knowledge and most of the specimens that we needed to put the book together already, and it was just a matter of tapping into um, Lawrence's vast understanding of the species biology, and then you know frankly, Google is our friend too, and um, a lot of the information on some of the specifics, pretty arcane sometimes um, was there to confirm uh, via various internet uh, databases.
0: What are some of your favorite bees, and why?
1: I have a hard time with that question. I don't particularly have um, a set of favorites except for one, and mostly it was. In the bee world, uh, we mostly deal with scientific names, although we gave all the species English names in this book. But the um, scientific genus Nomada, which is uh, a set of nest parasites, in other words, they lay their egg in the nests of other bees that do carry pollen, and their young basically usurp the uh, nest and take over with disastrous consequences, I should point out, to the um, young of the um, the host's uh, uh, species. Um, it's a and the reason I like it is they're they're exquisitely beautiful in reds and oranges, and they're also exquisitely difficult to figure out what the species are. So, it had been an orphaned group, and now for quite a number of years have been trying to figure out what the different species are, the correct associations between the males and females, really fundamental things. Which is one of the things we point out is that unlike say birds and mammals, which we have relatively complete understanding of what the species are around the whole world. There is so much that we don't know about even what the names of the species are. So over half the world's species don't even have a name at this point. We might be over 100 years behind, say, the vertebrate people in terms of just basic natural history. That includes the United States. A lot of the species without names in the United States do.
0: Could you share with our listeners how some of these bees obtained their names?
1: So all bees that are officially a named species have a latin name, a two-part latin name, a genus and a species behind that. There is relatively thick books on the rules about how to how to craft those names and what to do when you, you know, run into situations where you inadvertently say named it the same thing as someone on another continent. So those are latin and sometimes greek rooted names and usually there's a description within the Latin and Greek names of some characteristic of the bee, whether it's life history, what kind of plant it uses, or what it looks like. When a species name is published, there's again, there's this set of rules. The um, description is made, and then if it's accepted in a a scientific publication, then the author is the person who sets what the name of the species is going to be. And they can literally name it whatever they want as long as they fall within a set of general rules about what a Latin name is composed of. The English names, or common names as we might call them, those are common names, so anyone can make them up, and because most of these bees are not something that people recognize on a day-to-day basis or use commercially, they don't really have English names because there's been no need to, they're not hurting people, almost none of these sting, for example, and they're not something we get honey from or commercially available. There's 4,000 different, an estimated 4,000 different species in North America, none of which people really tangle with. They might say, well, there's a bumblebee, but they don't parse it down to one of the 50 different kinds of bumblebees. What we did is we looked at the uh, the bee, and we looked at its characters, and we you know understand something about what it does, and we just made up names for them. Again, part of the fun of doing this book.
0: Can you offer some advice to our listeners as far as how they can tell the difference between, say, a a bee and other pollinators, such as a fly?
1: Well, it's trickier than you might think. So one way to craft this is to say that bees actually are wasps. So if you get all scientific about it, taxonomically, they are wasps. They just happen to be vegetarian wasps. All the rest of the wasps are carnivores. Bees are vegetarians subsisting on a diet of uh, pollen and nectar. Because of that, though, the physical characteristics that you might say, like, well, bees are hairy. Well, there's a lot of hairy wasps, it turns out, too. So it's tricky enough that even in a laboratory, we usually process all the wasps and bees together because a lot of wasps look like bees, and a lot of bees actually look like wasps. a very, very, very general sense, if it's a hairy-looking wasp, it stands to be a bee. And because some bees sting, and even if the sting is mild to us, it might not be mild to a bird who is a lot smaller relative to us when compared to a bee, many other things like flies will mimic bees. So telling the flies that are mimics, hoverflies and flower flies mostly, from the bees is a little bit easier than telling a wasp from bee. So the trick is flies only have two wings, bees and wasps have four, and additionally, Flies don't have waists, but bees do. So there's a little, and wasps for that matter, they have a, you know, right between the thorax and the abdomen, it's pinched in. Um, You don't see that. It looks like one uniform unibody for a fly. If you want to add one little more facet, flies have very narrow, thin, thread-like antennae, and bees have relatively thick antennae that even on the smallest ones you can see, whereas in flies, oftentimes you can't even see the the antenna.
0: Are there any particular patterns of behavior in bees that differ from one part of the world to another?
1: Oh, my God, yes. One of the interesting things, and, and this is really one of the things that we point out in the book, is that over the millennia, and it's been millions of years that, bees and flowers have developed this relationship. So all the flowers that you see that you care about in terms of putting into bouquets and things like that all were designed by bees or one of the few other kinds of pollinators that are insects. So it's a collaboration. Um, we know by going to the florist shop what that diversity of flowers looks like but what we don't know because they're small, we don't interact with them, they're not useful, they're not pretty in the sense of we're going to display them in our house. We don't know that also, at the same time, there's this huge diversity of bees that would visit and pollinate those flowers. All these different floral structures, think of orchids, for example, have really complicated relationships with a very um, physically diverse set of bees. So some of them go to flowers simply to gather, like in a lot of the orchids, to simply gather scents in which to attract other female bees. Other times you have the long corollid flowers, say, like morning glories or squash even, and you'll have bees that have extremely long tongues. And it just goes on and on. There are so many different stories and many more to discover because, again, we really are just scratching the surface. But in the book, we emphasize some of those kinds of really tight relationships. Many bees only visit one genus of plant, sometimes only one species of plant. And things, everything from trees like willow trees have many bee species that specialize only on willow pollen. Cactus have lots of specialists. You can just go down the list. But in particular, if it's got a big showy flower, there's probably a bee somewhere nearby that specializes in that particular plant.
0: Are there any? places that you would recommend to the listeners as far as where they can identify a particular bee that they might find in the yard and they just want to know what type of species it is?
1: Yeah, the the best thing to do if you um, are just the average gardener or homeowner and all yards are potentially huge bee refuges so Uh, Bees work at very small scales. You're not going to get bison in your backyard, but you certainly can get almost any bee species if you plant them with native plants. So once you have these native plants, you'll see all this diversity of bees if you look at the flowers on a daily basis. The best thing to do is take a picture. The better the picture, the more likely you are to get an identification, and go to the website called bugguide.net. That's by the University of Iowa runs it. And first of all, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, pictures of all the different bee species on there, and you can picture book it. You can just look for it. But additionally, you can submit your picture to the um, to bug guide, and a set of volunteers will parse your picture. It might take them a little while, but ultimately they'll put an identification, if they can, if the picture's good enough on it. That, for a, a person who just is interested in a, you know, a bee here and there that intrigues them, that's the best route. If you're more serious, there's online guides, like we have online guides on um, a website called discoverlife.org with lots of pictures, too. It's more technically oriented, so usually we're talking about using a microscope. But a good fraction of bees can be identified via a picture, at least to the genus. Species level can be tricky, but sometimes you can get it, too.
0: Speaking of photography, do you have any tips for other wildlife photographers as far as time of day to take photographs mm-hmm. or location, shading, what have you?
1: Well, first of all, as bees are active. you know, One of the nice things about bee study is bees are active during the day. How convenient is that? And if it's rainy or super windy or very cloudy even, they're not out. So if you want to be out on a sunny day, having a macro lens is a useful thing but not a requirement. So as we talked about before, a lot of uh, macro lenses are good, but today's smartphones are are more than adequate sometimes to take pictures. But in general, if you want to get serious, you're talking about macro photography and a macro lens and a, a DSLR.
0: Sam, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. Your book, Bees, An Up-Close Look at Pollinators Around the World, is really one for everyone who loves nature or even to just get a conversation started about what's going on with our pollinators and perhaps, as you pointed out, pique the interest of people who just have no idea or no interest in the bees. When you take a look at the pictures in this book, it's hard to put down. There's so many beautiful photographs and it's a great way to learn a little bit more about their world. So thank you for taking the time to write this book and do all the work that you did as far as taking the photographs and whatnot. It really truly is a beautiful book.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, You're very welcome. And that's exactly our objective is just if we can just get people to like bees a little bit more or just be intrigued by the pictures, hey, that's 82% of the job done.
0: Sam, can you share with the listeners your website and how people can pick up a copy of the book or if you have any upcoming lectures that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so the the book's available on Amazon.com and probably several other online bookstore um, locations. Additionally, you can get all the pictures in the book and including a whole set of additional uh, pictures that we have only online from our Flickr site. So the Flickr, our Flickr handle is... U-S-G-S-B-I-M-L, for B Inventory and Monitoring Lab. Additionally, you can just do a name search on my last name and bees, and most of those will come up. But they're all public domain. You can do absolutely whatever you want with them. Uh, they print out great in your, you know, local big box uh, photography store, um, and we really encourage that kind of thing to happen. So, We work for the federal government, we work for the people, and we take that seriously, and um, we're your public servants.
0: Thank you, Sam. And it's great to know that there are people like you out there doing this and trying to get the information out there to raise awareness about how important bees are, as well as other pollinators. So thank you once again. You bet. Sam, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. And also, folks, if you want to connect with Sam and the work that he does, please check out the companion article, which will be available on the Organic View website, as well as the links for his Facebook page and for a lister that he has for the purpose of discussion so that people around the world can connect with Sam and learn more about his work. So please check that out on the website. Sam, once again, thank you for being on the show today. It has been a pleasure, and I sincerely hope you come back.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure, too. I would be glad to come back anytime.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Steuer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, folks.